Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. We are in week two of three to celebrate Eastertide. Happy Easter, everybody. Eastertide is when we pause after Easter, and we kind of remain in that season to think about resurrection. Because resurrection is a powerful reality that we live by. Resurrection is the reality that the reign of Jesus, the King, is ongoing. The King, Jesus, who served. Jesus, the King, who washed feet. Jesus, the King, who looked at the outcast, the marginalized, the shut out from society, and he said, I want you to come into my living room and sit at this table. Jesus, the King, that was found an enemy of the state. Jesus, the king who submitted himself nonviolently to resist death, crucifixion. Easter is a celebration, though, that Good Friday doesn't have the final word. Easter is the celebration of a tomb that was found empty, that Jesus overcame death with life. And not only that, but Jesus transforms death. And we get to participate in this transformation today. There's two quotes that Mark shared on Easter Sunday that I want to bring back up. The first one is a quote from Jesus in John chapter 12. He says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. I think one of the best commentaries on this passage is from a writer named Barbara Brown Taylor, and she has a quote on this where she says, new life, new life, it starts in the dark. Whether it's a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. I love this sentence, this statement, that we have an opportunity for new life. But the reality of this world is is that we have darkness surrounding us. Easter time, we celebrate the hope that we have in resurrection, that light can transform darkness. This is a theme found throughout the scriptures, and so today we're going to take a look of one of those scriptures that's not in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament, it's by the prophet Jeremiah, and it's in Jeremiah chapter 29, and it contains for many one of the most popular verses we have of in our culture today. I think you guys probably know it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans not for harm, but for hope, for healing, for goodness. It just makes you want to give yourself a hug, doesn't it? We love this passage. It's such a warm fuzzy. It feels so good, which is exactly why we see it on so much Hobby Lobby art, right? (laughs) This is from our church office. What I love about this verse is when it's used, the swirly font, the flowers, the little twills. We love this passage. For me, it's May. It's graduation season. I can remember I was introduced to this when I graduated from high school. And keep an eye on this. You guys are going to see this verse, I promise you, this graduation season. When I graduated from high school, I was given a green and gold pocket Bible, the perfect gift for a Baylor-bound student. And on the front cover, there it was, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have. I then went on, I went through seminary, and I worked at a Christian nonprofit in Los Angeles helping 
families experiencing homelessness, and outside my office in that swirly script, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future. Our modern American evangelical world seems so enthralled by this verse. It's become a warm and popular sentiment that we commonly share. It's written on our coffee mugs. It's stitched on our grandma's pillowcases. But beneath the surface of this word lies a prophetic message, a prophetic message of flat-out radical and alternative belief. Did you know that this verse was written to a people in exile? This verse was written to a people suffering one of the harshest realities of their time. Jeremiah's letter of hope is understood best when we read it within the context of exile. So before digging into this passage of hope, I think it's first that we look at a little bit of history. Jeremiah's reign, or his, not his reign, Jeremiah's time as a, as a prophet, his ministry began in 627 BCE. Now this was a relatively peaceful time in history, which was very rare. You know this if you've gone through the Old Testament. You see, Israel occupied a very valuable piece of real estate. It was a very prime piece of land that was a little, literally a land bridge wedged between these powerful places like Egypt and Rome and the Babylonians. At the turn of the 6th century, it was the Babylonians who wanted that land. It seemed whoever had the best economy likewise had the biggest military, and they wanted that. So at the turn of the 6th century, the Babylonians had come to surround Israel, and by 597 B.C., they had invaded the capital city, Jerusalem. The capital city which contained the Temple of Solomon, which contained the Ark of the Covenant, which it was believed the Spirit of God dwelled with his people. They decimated, desecrated, destroyed this temple. They took the king of Israel outside the city gates. They brought out his sons before him, the future heirs of the kingdom, and they murdered them in front of him. They then gouged out his eyes, and they led him, along with tens of thousands, some historians say hundreds of thousands of Israelites, into captivity, into Babylon. For I know the plans I have for you. <laughs> with some of the population forced into this exile, there was still a remnant that was left to remain in Israel, and one of those people was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's role was to send letters, words of encouragement, to his people, to his community in this captivity. Jeremiah 29 is one of those letters that he sent to them. And in it, despite their circumstances, he offers them hope and he gives them encouragement. Jeremiah does three things in this. One, he instructs them on a role that they have. Two, he calls them to resist an easy road. And three, he provides for them a new reality of hope despite their circumstances of brokenness, pain, and suffering. These words of encouragement are as real for us today as we face the same realities of brokenness and darkness in our world. I do think there's something valuable about being honest, and I want to acknowledge with you guys that I have lived very much a life of privilege I have been fortunate and blessed to go through this life without a lot of chronic um, traumatic stress. 
and that is such a blessing. But for, for whatever reason, over the past eight years, I found myself working alongside communities that experienced some of the most trauma, some of the most brokenness and pain that our society knows of. Because of this, I believe it's given me an opportunity to see the world through a lens that's not my own. And I think that is really a blessing and a privilege. I've been able to see the world through the eyes of someone who's mistreated because of their skin color, because of their gender, or because of their orientation. I've been able to see the world through the lens of someone who's been sold, someone who's been um, abandoned or neglected or abused. I've been able to help and assist and see the world through the lens of someone who doesn't have a place to stay that night or the teenager who wants to take their life. Some in this congregation have perhaps experienced these things. Perhaps other of you have experienced other types of trauma, other types of pain, an unwelcome diagnosis, the loss of a loved one, depression, job loss, abuse. Exile is the reality of being in a place that we do not want to be or being forced into a place that you feel that you should not be. For Jeremiah's audience, this was a very literal exile. They were forced to live in a place that they did not want to be. But I know the brokenness and the darkness that many of us have felt. We find ourselves isolated, alone, scared, feeling abandoned. We feel that we're in a place that we don't want to be. For those who can resonate with this, for those who feel they've been in a place that they don't want to be, or maybe for those of you right now who feel that you're in a place you don't want to be, I think Jeremiah's words of hope and encouragement can be for you, can be for us. So the first movement is a role. Jeremiah begins his letter by telling the community in exile how they are to live and what their role should be. Verses 4 through 7 read, Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too marry and have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Can you imagine being in this place, being in this time of suffering and darkness and hearing this word? Surely this would be mind-blowing and even frustrating to be told to do this. To a people forced out of their homes, they are called to settle in this place as if this was their new home. Forced to a foreign land, distant and away from what they know, they are called to garden, to cultivate the earth and to bear fruit. Forced, or to a people who are forced away from their community, they are called to marry, to have kids, and to have grandkids. While surely this message would have been shocking and frustrating, this word from Jeremiah also would have been in a strange way familiar to the Jewish people. Did this call to bear fruit and to multiply resonate or sound familiar to anyone here? For this Jewish audience, they would have been very familiar with the creation story, 
the creation story where God created all things in the garden and it culminated with the creation of humanity. And before shame and brokenness and suffering had entered the world, God gives original blessing. So often as a church we think about original sin, but before that there was original blessing. God tells them in Genesis 1:28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. As Jeremiah calls the people of exile to cultivate, to create, and to grow, Jeremiah is reimagining. He's expanding the creation blessing. Jeremiah is saying that God's blessing is not contained simply to the garden when everything was right. God's blessing continues today, even in a time of brokenness, even when you're in a foreign place. God has not given up. God has not abandoned his people, and his plan is not finished. God is still at work, even in the worst of times. The plan is further imagined through the role of the community in exiles. Jeremiah calls his people to seek shalom, shalom, shalom. We don't see that translation. That's the Hebrew word that we most often translate as peace. But we see here it's only translated once as peace, but also as prosperity. This word shalom is God's vision for the people of God to live a life not just with the absence of conflict like peace, but also to be whole, to be made right. God's plan for his people is to cultivate shalom, to look towards others, even enemies, and to bless, to seek their wholeness. The most, maybe the most scandalous thing Jeremiah tells this people to do is to pray for their captors, to wish for their wholeness and their wellness. Can you imagine this in your world today if we took this word seriously? If we took our role as God's people to truly bless, to seek shalom in others? What would it look like if to our enemies we prayed for them? What would it look like if we, on our terms, we ended the cycle of harm? That game we play where someone says something painful and hurtful to us and then we do this thing back and then they do that thing. And what if we ended that game? What if we were a people of cultivation? What if we cultivated peace and wholeness and restoration even when it wasn't easy, even in brokenness and pain? Jeremiah is not providing an easy or conventional path for the people of exile. I think it's important, I want to step back in a sense, I'll stand off the rug here, I want to do a quick disclaimer. I think there's a really dangerous reality with a passage like this, and, and harm can be done when we take a passage like this and we say, if you're in a place of harm, that God wants you to be there, so just suck it up and let God do something through you. I think that can be very toxic, and I don't think that should be the message here. I think the reality is, is God is a God of healing, and God is present with us, and God desires for our transformation. So for anyone today who finds himself in an abusive relationship, it's okay to seek help. If there's anybody here struggling with depression, it's okay to seek help. These things are okay. I think this should be like a ticker running along the bottom of this message because we're walking on, on dangerous ground here. The second movement, after imagining a new role for those in exile to live, Jeremiah's second encouragement is for the people to resist. Verses 8 through 10 read, 
Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. It's clear that Jeremiah is not the only one prophesying, giving words of hope and encouragement to his people. We find out later in the chapter that there was a much more popular prophet speaking to the Israelites, and he was more popular because he was giving them a message that they wanted to hear. The other prophet was telling them, don't worry about this, all this mess and all this pain and suffering because God is quickly going to take you out of it. It's pretty hard to listen to someone who's telling you to dig in, to cultivate, to bless the other person when you also have someone on the other side saying, ah, don't worry about it. This will end soon and you'll get to go home. Everything will be fine. How often in our lives do we seek the counsel of the person who tells us what we want to hear? How often do we listen to the advice that's easy, even though it might go contrary to what is true and what is real? Likewise, on the other side, how often are we the friend that we back down from giving the true advice? How often do we back down from saying the thing that's real, but it's challenging and it's difficult? Jeremiah tells them that this exile will not just be for a short time. Jeremiah says that the time frame for their captivity would be 70 years. This number 70 would have been a crushing blow because the average lifespan at the time was probably around 70 years. For a community hearing this message, what they're really hearing is there's a good likelihood that you're not going to go home. There's a good likelihood that maybe the future generations will get to do this, but this pain and the suffering might last a long time. While there's still ultimate hope that God will eventually return his people, Jeremiah shoots the people straight and he lets them know that their, their uh, suffering and their struggle is known by God, and yet it is still going to take place. I'm going to be honest, this is a really hard text. This is a really hard reality to grasp with. Jeremiah's message is that yes, pain and suffering will last a long time. For some of us, the reality that God would allow pain and suffering to be a part of our journey throughout the duration of our life is very hard to cope with, and rightfully so. Why does God allow this? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Why does God bring apart Diagnosis, death, difficult news, loss of loved ones. A hard reality of this passage and a hard reality of the world we live in is that bad things happen to good people, tragic things. It's happened within our congregation. As I look out, and see, Wayne, there's difficult things that don't make sense. It just doesn't. It's so painful. Or the reality yesterday that we lost one of the prophets and boldest leaders of our church, Rachel Held Evans, a mom of a one-year-old who was taken 
She provided so much comfort to people of color and to women in the church. There's just not easy answers for it. I think if there's any comfort, I think one of the beautiful things about this passage and of Jeremiah and our scriptures as a whole is it doesn't lie about suffering and darkness. It doesn't avoid it. It doesn't pretend like it doesn't exist. But it talks about it a lot. It's the reality of the world that we live in. There's actually an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations. And what's crazy is Lamentations was written by the people in exile in Babylonian captivity. And the entire thing, it just teaches us how we can moan and wail and cry out to God. There's like a sliver of hope in it, and the rest of it is just, why, God, why? For whatever the reason that God allows suffering, the reality of humanity is that we will face brokenness and darkness. But Jeremiah does not end with this reality of suffering, but instead the suffering is met with a promise, a promise that the people of exile will find and will know God. The third movement is a new reality. Verses 11 through 14 read, For I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, you will come and pray to me, and I will hear you. In other words, I will be there. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. To the suffering people of exile, Jeremiah provides a new reality of hope. Amidst a time of isolation and loneliness, Jeremiah provides a new reality that God will be found by the people of exile and that God is actually present in their suffering. He's not abandoned them. Those in exile are seen and they are known by God and God still has a plan for their life, one of wholeness and one of hope. I believe it was always the intention of God to expand to the ends of the earth outside of Israel. And through this dark time, there actually remained a people in Babylon seeking shalom, seeking wholeness, promoting the will of God to the world. The hope of those in exile is not that God will eradicate suffering. The hope for us is not that we're going to live in a life free of pain, of death, but instead, the hope is that God can redeem it. Again, the hope of exile is not that God will eradicate suffering, but that instead, that God will redeem it. In the darkness and the rubble of their situation and our situations today, there's a new light dawning, and there's a rebuilding sure to come. This is the hope of resurrection. This is the good news of Easter, that where there was death, where there was brokenness, there's an opportunity for life. There's a rebuilding. There's a newness. The reality of the resurrected Christ is not only that our wounds can be healed as Christ's wounds were, but that they can be transformed, that we can be made new. There's a term coined by the author Henry Nouwen who calls it the wounded healer. In this term, he describes Jesus as the ultimate example of a wounded healer, but also that we as Christians can be wounded healers. The reality of a wounded healer is that first we must face our wounds, and the promise we have as Christians is that it will be met with healing. There is hope in our own brokenness. 
once we face that, we then can be a source of healing to this world. I work for a nonprofit in town called LifeWorks. And at LifeWorks, we serve very vulnerable communities of youth and young adults who have experienced a lot of trauma, a lot of stress, and a lot of issues. There's been an epiphany over the last couple years that the most effective people at serving our clients are actually people with lived experience. That is, people who have gone through homelessness, substance use, mental health, those are more likely to be able to build rapport and break through with the clients that we serve. So we've reallocated our programs, we've reshifted the way that we do programming, and we've boosted the role of peer support to become part of all that we do. I want to show a quick video that tells some stories of some wounded healers. For a while, we were back and forth from New Orleans to Baton Rouge, and then after Hurricane Katrina, we moved to Austin. We lived in some pretty sketchy places with a lot of sketchy guys. My mother was kind of, was very abusive. I felt like I never was doing things to her standards. I also didn't know how to express my emotions. There was a lot of struggle with me and my stepdad. I was told like really hateful things and the emotional and physical abuse started. I was nine years old and my mother was gone most of the time and I started taking care of my younger sister, Savannah. It was very, very, very difficult. I got prescribed a lot of medication that I probably should not have been on. And I just began like saving my pills and starting like to abuse them. It just kind of spiraled out of control really fast. I don't think CPS ever got involved until I tried to have a suicide attempt. I was 11, yeah, and I had taken a bunch of pills. I felt like that was my like serious cry for help. I was introduced to drugs. I think I felt relieved whenever I first tried marijuana because I couldn't escape at my house. I didn't have anybody. It was just my mom and there was no escaping that. I was a little bit uh, crying out for help. It was really hard for me to like cope because I really started noticing that things just weren't right. And that's when my anxiety just really shot up. Mental illness can give you that like little chip on your shoulder and that devil on your shoulder that just says, you're not gonna get through this and you're not gonna be okay. So you're constantly like fighting yourself and I think that a lot of people don't understand the fight that you have like with yourself. My anxiety got pretty bad. You can be in a room full of people and still feel alone. I didn't think anybody could really listen to me or I didn't think anybody would first of all believe what I was going through or understand. I felt hopeless. I felt alone. I, I thought, thought I was the only one. one. I didn't know who to talk to until I met you and that that is true. Peer support itself is a type of counseling. It's a therapeutic relationship, but the key difference between peer support and traditional counseling is that peer supporters get to share their lived experience. When you started talking to me about the things that you had gone through and how your brain works, and I was like, oh my God, okay, that makes me think, like, I can do it. The beauty of peer support is that because I get to share little bits of my story, it buys credibility and it also buys that trust and that level of commonality. Our peer support special. Cool. 
Sorry for the abrupt cutoff. It's a long video meant for development purpose, but I hope you kind of saw what I was going at. For me, this video is so tough. Um, I worked with Raina a lot, and it was such a struggle. She went through program after program after program. I was cussed out and threatened, and it was crazy. And to be honest, I lost hope for Raina. I didn't think there was opportunity. She wasn't safe to be in our program. She had burned all the bridges. It just wasn't working. This story is too familiar in our community. This story of abuse and trauma for just kids. Young kids, it's not, it's not fair. Sorry, why am I so emotional? The most poignant part of this clip is when, for me, Raina and Ashley both described their experiences and the way they felt so alone. They felt so isolated, even in a crowded room. It shows me that exile is real, even today. As I talked about my loss of hope for Raina and all the programs that she had gone through, the reality is, is that hope was restored when Raina met a wounded healer when Raina met someone who had been to the depths and who had believed that there was hope, that there could be life even after trauma, even after brokenness. There could be beauty even after ashes. The truth for all of us today, despite our situations, is we all have a wounded healer. All of us have a wounded healer in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see the God who descends down. God came down to this world, and Jesus took the flesh of humanity, and he experienced isolation, brokenness, pain, and suffering. The great irony of our church today is so often our goal is to ascend up. We want to look a certain way. We want to worship God and have this experience in the clouds and be lifted and be light. But constantly in the scriptures, God tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of earth. And Jesus hung out and dwelled with people who were broken, people who admitted their sufferings. For us, we have nothing to hide. All of us face brokenness, and that is okay. We shouldn't avoid these things. Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan friar, he talks about the path of the Christian is the path of descent. And by that, he says that our woundedness, our failure, our relapse, our death, these things are our greatest teachers. For Jeremiah, as he writes to a broken and hurting community, these elements of role, resistance, and reality, they're all woven together, which is why the concluding verse, for I know the plans I have for you, if it's said without the context of exile, it might ring hollow it might not have the punch that it really has. The reality of knowing Christ is not divorced from the reality of living in a broken world. As Mark shared last week, the resurrected of Christ appeared to his disciples and he showed them his wounds, which he still had. Jesus didn't make any false claims that the life of the Christian would be void of suffering, of darkness. But what he did say is that there's healing, there's hope, there's life, there's resurrection. This resurrection hope is what we can cling to as a community today in a dark 
and broken world. This resurrection hope that God has not abandoned us. That God is present with those who suffer. That God has a plan and a purpose for all of us. That God is not distant from those who suffer, but instead we're told that God dwells in those places and is near to us. Church, may we be a church that surrounds those in our midst who are suffering, who are broken and who are hurt. May we be a place of pointing towards Jesus, the wounded healer. May we seek wholeness in our own community. May we extend out into our city and into our world and we proclaim this message that there is hope in our world today, that God has not abandoned this world or his plan and his purpose for it. May we be a church of resurrection hope.